The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're in this very brief mini-series of, of messages that I've entitled Essentials. And I began the topic last week talking about possessions. And I defined this whole uh, idea as basically living for the essentials means doing with less so that we can live more fully for what matters most in God's eyes. Again, living for the essentials means doing with less so that we can live more fully for what matters most in God's eyes. And the two parts of this definition that I highlighted last week were doing with less and in God's eyes. One of the things that I unpacked a bit last week is how many of us live in this modern era in this illusion that we can have it all without giving up anything. I think that's sort of, in fact, one of the ethos of our generation, of our time right now, is the sense like, I don't have to give up anything. I can have it all. I can do it all. I can be everything that I want to be. And really almost as if we can have it cost-free, that it doesn't require me to lose anything in the choices that I make. Um, But to really live a life centered on the essentials, I think it does require us to say no to some things. In fact, it may even require us to say no to good things because they are pulling our hearts away from the best things that God has for us. I also pointed out that uh, the determination of whether we live a worthwhile or a wasted life is not up to us. You know, that's not our choice. It's God's judgment and his judgment alone. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, Paul talks about the judgment that is coming to all of us. And he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It's a very interesting teaching Paul offers us. In essence, what he is saying is that the sum of your life, the work that sums up your life will be tested one day by the fire of God in the sense of just, it's a metaphor to picture the sense of uh, weighing that life on a scale and seeing Was it worthwhile? Did you live for the right things? And the point that Paul is making here is that when Jesus died for you, he laid for you a new foundation for your life. And what Paul is saying is, as you live your life, as you do your work, as you pursue the goals in your life, you can only build on one foundation. And it's that foundation that Jesus laid. You're not, you don't have the liberty to choose your own agenda as to the meaning that you want to make of your life. But in essence, the litmus test will be, did you build on the foundation that Jesus laid for you when he died for you on the cross and saved you? 
I think one of the great tragedies of sin is the way that it derails us from God's original purpose of honoring him in our lives. But when Jesus saves us, he sets us on an entirely new course for our lives so that now we can live for his glory. And the question that Paul is asking is, will you build on that foundation? And will everything that you pursue in your life be centered around that new agenda that God has for you? Because there are so many ways to get sidetracked from that fundamental calling that we have. And as we talked about last week, one of the most obvious ways that that happens is through wealth, through money, through possessions. One of the ways that we reveal our life priorities is through our possessions, isn't it? Matthew six twenty four. no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's interesting how often the Bible personifies money as a God. And Jesus himself does it here in the Gospels. And I think the reason why Jesus does this is because he's saying that in so many ways, money imitates God. It promises all the same things that God promises to us, like happiness and security and significance and power. I think money is also often described as God because the truth is we often worship it. I don't think most of us are honest about the degree to which money and possessions take a hold of our hearts. I think there is this sort of naivete that we all like to think, you know, well, I, I, I like good things like the next person, but it doesn't control me. It doesn't own my heart. But I think Jesus often sounds a warning. Be on your guard because your possessions have a way of doing that in your life. Romans 1, 25 speaks of humanity and says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. In other words, what Paul is saying is rather than using the resources and material things that God has given in this good earth to glorify him and honor him, instead we've turned his design completely on its head and it says that we began to worship these very material things. Now, it sounds like Paul is talking about idolatry of some ancient peoples, but this is a description of humanity in the 21st century, of us pursuing the things of this life as an end in it of itself, as though these things can give us fulfillment and satisfaction. It's interesting, John Piper talks about this article in this Reader's Digest magazine that celebrates a couple who were so successful in life that they were able to retire in their 50s and buy this amazing 30-foot yacht and basically sail the seas and play softball and collect seashells for the rest of their days. And commenting on that article, John Piper writes, at first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. 
As Piper points out, if the entire goal of our lives is to make enough money so that we can retire early and spend the rest of our days enjoying our wealth on self-indulgent living, that is not what God would consider the good life, but a tragic and wasted life. You were made for so much more than an early retirement, a nest egg, a golden parachute, whatever you want to call it. I think one of the problems with worshiping money is that it can never deliver on its promises. Money can only imitate God. It can never deliver what God offers to us. It can never truly replace him. Famed comedian and actor Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. He reached the height of what anyone would consider the good life. And it's, it's like Carrie summited that mountain. And he sees all these other people trying to climb up to where he is. And he's saying, just stop. It's not so good up here. And I think this is all in all honesty is the message no one is willing to buy, right? Oh, it's easy for you to say because you've got everything. Let me get there and I'll make, be the judge of that myself. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. One of the things that I said last week, and I'm just going to kind of wrap up the review with this, is if you want to live a life centered on the essentials of what God deems to be most valuable, we must learn to live more simply when it comes to material things. Now, you hear me say this a lot here at ICC, is I think the focus is always not so much on behavior, but on the heart, right? If the heart doesn't change, any attempts for behavior modification are in vain. Um, you know, last week I talked about how during my sabbatical in the last summer, I had the strong conviction about my own being consumed by material things. And one of the ways I did it was that I pretty much gave out, gave away like probably 80% of my wardrobe to Goodwill and just donated it away. Um, and I like to try to get rid of another 10% if, uh, if I could, um, but here was the funny thing, was after I donated almost all my clothing, a few weeks later, I had this nagging temptation to go to the store and buy a whole new wardrobe. You know? <laughs> because it was this feeling like, oh, you know, now that I have no clothes, what a great opportunity to finally bring my wardrobe up to date, you know, and not look so dowdy, you know. Because you see, you can, you can make changes, but if the heart doesn't change, then the behavior is only skin deep. And yet, and yet, the reason why I'm calling for this idea of a simpler lifestyle is because the Bible also teaches that it works in reverse as well, that our behaviors can also shape the course of our heart. Matthew 6, 21, we looked at this last week. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. In other words, it says, Jesus does say your heart should be what drives your behavior, but also he's saying your behavior can also drive your heart. And so Jesus warns them, wherever you're putting your investment, wherever you're putting all your energies and your time and your money, and if it is to accrue more and more things, then your heart is going to follow. And all of your hope, all your sense of meaning, all your sense of purpose is going to be locked in those things that you love so much and that you spent all of your effort building up as your estate. And so part of the training process to teach our hearts to long for the things of God is to actually learn how to let go of so many of these things that fill our lives, that fill our houses, that fill us with a sense of contentment and happiness. Well, I want to transition now from this topic of possessions to the topic of time. What does it mean to live for the essentials when it comes not to the matter of possessions, but to the matter of time? And I want to sort of summarize it by the singular statement that says, living for the essentials means understanding God's priorities for us in each season of our life. Let me say that again. Living for the essentials means understanding God's priorities for us in each season of our life. And I'm going to unpack that definition a little bit for the rest of this message. On December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 took off from New York to head to Miami. And it would never reach Miami International Airport because it crashed in the Florida Everglades and 101 passengers were killed on that flight. And what is so tragic about Eastern Air 401 was this was that it was an accident that didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. As 401 was approaching Miami Airport, the pilot engaged the landing gear. But the light wouldn't come on to confirm that the landing gear had actually descended. And so they weren't sure whether it was a mechanical failure and that there were no wheels under the plane or if it was just the light bulb was broken. So they actually sent one of the crew to go in the bay and see if the wheels had actually come down or not and they found and to see if it did or not. But in the meanwhile, they started work on this little light bulb that was there on the cockpit. And the chief pilot was trying to get this light bulb out there, and it was stuck, so he couldn't get it. Within a few minutes, the entire crew of that cockpit had gathered around this little light bulb, trying to figure out how to get it out of its socket. And they were so preoccupied with this light bulb that they, none of them noticed that one of them had bumped into the autopilot switch and disengaged it. And over the next 10 minutes, the plane began its slow descent without a single pilot seeing it until it hit the Everglades at over 200 miles an hour. What an absolute tragedy. What an absolute unnecessary tragedy. I think that story, though, pictures for us, I think, the way many of our lives can easily shape up is we're all staring at this little light bulb trying to fix this thing. And we don't see the plane going down. We don't see the bigger picture. We don't see 
the tragedy of a life that has gone off course. I'm talking about focus. I'm talking about priorities and what matters most, what we need to be paying attention to. Robert McCain says the reason most major goals are not achieved is that we spend our time doing second things first. This is so often the truth behind a tragic life is not being able to recognize that which is a first priority. And so we fiddle away our lives with trivial concerns and things that in the eyes of God are lesser. Bill Hybel says, simplified living is about more than doing less. It's being who God called us to be with a wholehearted, single-minded focus. It's walking away from innumerable lesser opportunities in favor of the few to which we've been called and for which we've been created. And that's an interesting challenge to any of us is would you know in your own life even good things that you would say no to because you know what God has called you to in your life, your mission, your calling, the things that he has set for you. We have to prioritize our time because we don't have infinite resources. We have to honor our limitations. You can't have it all. You can't do it all. None of us are infinite in our capacity. Choices have to be made, and even good choices may at times have to be let go. William Henson wrote a poem, and in it, we find these lines. He who seeks one thing and but one may hope to achieve it before life is done. But he who seeks all things wherever he goes must reap around him in whatever he sows a harvest of barren regret. I think there's a lot of truth to those lines. If you try to do everything, you will accomplish nothing. It is the person that has a sense of mission a sense of focus, a sense of purpose that ultimately lives a life of meaning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 17 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. Make the best use of the time. And understand what the Lord's will is. You may have heard me mention this before, but to the Greeks, there were two uses of time. They had two words for time. The first is chronos, which is quantitative time, like measuring the hours and the days and the years. That's chronos. But a more interesting word that they had for time was the word kairos. Kairos. And that word means a specially appointed time by God for a good work to be done. A specially appointed time, a kairos, for a good work to be done. And that's the word that is being used in these verses. Make the best use of the kairos. That's why often this word is not just translated time, but translated season or opportunity. Make the most use of the window of opportunity that God has opened in this season of your life to accomplish something that he has ordained for you. 
And in fact, I think it's helpful to think of our life in terms of seasons. Because I think often that is how God works in our life. Is he brings us into certain seasons where he wants to accomplish something specific in us or in our family or in our work, in our world. And the wise person is the person who can discern what that season is. What is it that you're doing in my life right now, God? What is it that you want to accomplish in me? I want to say this. It's not too hard to prioritize your life when the stuff that you should be letting go are not good things. Like if you're literally watching Netflix three hours a day this summer, you shouldn't, okay? That's not rocket science. Or if you're like my kids, if every spare moment you're playing Fortnite, you know? Maybe a little less video games, okay? But where it becomes tricky is when the discernment is deciding among all good things, right? And the truth is that's often our struggle. Is when you're trying to cut out stuff and make space for other things, you look at everything that fills your busy schedule and you kind of look and you say, I don't know what to cut out here. Everything seems valuable. Everything seems important. So I want to say this. Discernment and wisdom are needed when all the choices seem good. We need discernment to know how to choose even from among the good things that we're so heavily involved with when we have lost our sense of focus and priority. Many, most of you in this room know that for five years our family lived in Kenya as missionaries. Between 2004 and 2009, and during those days, I was working as a doctor in Kenya at a mission hospital. Within six months, I was placed into this position of being uh, the medical director of the hospital. And in that position, we ended up starting in this project of uh, creating an HIV-AIDS program to get antiretroviral drugs to all of the people who were dying of AIDS in that region of Kenya. And then somehow God opened the door for us to begin work to start a nursing school in our hospital as well. These were great projects, but they were unbelievably demanding. And so within a few months of taking on this medical directorship position, I really shifted from being a clinician in the hospital ward to traveling almost 70% of the time to the capital city, Nairobi, where I was trying to get grants and meeting with politicians and trying to get policy changes and everything else to set up these programs. And I think in that first year, the truth is um, I had missed four out of my five kids' birthdays, okay, because I was on the road. And Betty, you know, I, God bless her, I have given her such a difficult life <laughs> marrying me. And she would try subtle ways to tell me, could you be home a little more? I need your help. Could you be around a little more? And, you know, this was such important work. I mean, people are dying with AIDS and you want me to help Luke with his homework? <laughs> and it all sort of came to a head one day when I was in Nairobi. And what had happened was around that time in our mission compound, um, there were these thugs, these local thugs, these, these guys that were actually violently breaking into homes. 
stealing stuff and beating up people even. And normally they wouldn't touch the missionary houses. They just kind of tend to victimize the local people. But these thugs were unusually brazen, and they began to break into missionary homes too. And one night they broke down the door of uh, this single woman missionary doctor, uh, not missionary, Kenyan doctor, who was living in the missionary compound with us. And she woke up from her bed to find five strange men in her house. Started screaming. Betty called me, you know, from our house. And she was crying. And she's saying, I am so scared. I am so scared. And she said, "Uh, I need you here, Steve. I need you here. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. It was interesting that same weekend that I was in Nairobi on hospital business, uh, I had an evening free. And so I decided to watch a movie by myself. (laughs) And it was a movie called Munich. Have any of you guys seen this movie, Munich? Okay. Munich is this true story by Steven Spielberg, a movie based on a true story made by Steven Spielberg about the secret team that was formed by the Israeli government that um, was hunting down Palestinian terrorists who were involved in the 1972 assassination of 11 Olympic athletes on the Israeli team in Munich, Germany. And as they're on this mission to kill these terrorists, the lead character, played by Eric Bana, his family is falling apart. He has a wife and a young kid at home. And his wife was saying the exact same things that my wife was saying to me. How important is this mission? What are you doing? And she kept begging him, come home, come home, I need you. But Eric Bana in that movie said this mission is too important and he wouldn't come home. And he kept killing terrorists. And I walked out of that movie theater (laughs) just, you know, thinking about my life. And it's weird, but I felt like God was trying to speak to me through this movie, saying, Steve, what are you doing? What are you really doing with your life right now? I want to say this. The answer was not as simple to me as less hospital work and more family. It wasn't. Because I think the truth is living in God's kingdom, sometimes sacrifices have to be made and tough decisions have to be made. But where God was bringing me was to a deeper place. Why running around like this as if you've totally abandoned your family? What is deeper in your soul, Steve? And as I began to explore that, I began to realize some very much darker motives in my heart. I began to see myself as the hero of this story and saying, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? If I don't build up these ministries... No one else will do it. And I began to see how much of what I was doing was driven by my fears and my insecurities and my own sense of importance. And it wasn't coming from a place of genuine faith and trust and belief that God is even in this picture. It was all about me. And out of that, what I inflicted on my family. You know, when I got home from that business trip, I met the first thing, my first order of business was to meet with that hospital board. And I said, I cannot 
do all this traveling. I just cannot. It's killing my family. And I said, once a month, I will do a hospital trip for this hospital. But that's all you get. The rest of the time, I have to be here. And what that sent me on was a journey of trust in God. If God is really in this, can he still work and accomplish this? And he did. He did. I think we need to create a space in our lives where we ask these deeper questions when it comes to the busyness that seems to plague all of us. Why do we do the things we do? Because I think the truth is the motives that often drive a very busy and frenetic life are not God-honoring motives. The truth is often we do things because we don't want to disappoint somebody and have to say no to them. So we just say yes to one commitment after another. We're worried that if we say no to this opportunity, another opportunity may not come up. So we say yes. We have our own sense of importance, our own sense of purpose when we say yes to things. And so we fill our lives with busyness out of our own insecurities of needing to feel important. And that's why as I wrap up my message today, I want to say I think one of the applications to really giving God our time is found in Psalm 46, verse 10 through 11. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the starting point to a life centered in the priorities of God is to know that he is here, that he is God. And it is out of honoring that reality that I reorder everything else in my life, my possessions, my time, and everything. In other words, we cannot have a well-ordered schedule if we do not have a well-ordered heart in which this truth looms larger than any other truth in our life. Because let me say this. I want to challenge each of you to be in prayer about that. What is this Kairos moment in my life? What is the season that I'm being invited to? Because simply knowing that answer is not enough. I'm going to tell you that the way that you form your weekly routine is centered often, I think, around our fears and our insecurities and truthfully, things that we're running away from more than things that we're running toward. Because maybe the things that are actually of first importance in your life are actually things too painful for you to want to deal with. And so you distract yourself with meaningless stuff that gives you a sense of busyness and a false sense of importance and accomplishing something, but in reality are not the things that God wants you to deal with in your life. Maybe the thing that you need to deal with most in this season is your marriage, but that's the last thing you want to deal with because of the pain of that relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's to shepherd a child that is going in a direction that worries you. And yet the truth is, that is too difficult a path for you to pursue. Maybe it's taking a huge risk with your career, and it feels too risky for you. I don't know what your Kairos moment may represent. What is the opportunity that God has laid before you? But it's going to take much more than insight or discernment to know what that is. It is also going to take the courage to step into that. 
Instead of drowning yourself in all these distractions, it's, it's crazy when I really try to look hard at this dynamic in my own life. Let me just give you one example of the silliness with which it plays out. In the midst of the busyness of my own life, I found myself escaping to some of these things. When church is not going well, when there's a lot of difficult things that I see and I don't want to deal with, you know what I noticed myself doing, crazy enough? Is I found myself diverting my attention to being a reviewer for Amazon products. <laughs> and the second is TripAdvisor trip reviews for the places I've been to around the world crazy. I have no time. I'm lacking sleep. And I'm writing these three paragraph reviews on a kitchen appliance. And I ask myself, why do I do this? Why? I have no time for this. But I realize when church is so hard and all my attempts to help someone feel like it's just going nowhere, when I write an Amazon review and people start saying it was helpful, 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 I kind of feel good about it. And you go to TripAdvisor and the pictures are garbage that people post of their smartphones. So I post these awesome pictures there. And I, I feel like they should buy them because they could be used for their brochure, you know? And then I get comments going, that picture was amazing. That place looks awesome. And it makes me feel good. I feel like I've helped somebody. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The way that we live our lives is often not centered around this fundamental sense of let me live for that which is most important. It's how do I get through this day with the feeling of just a little happiness that life is still worth living. Greg McCown says this, to eliminate non-essentials means saying no to someone often. It means pushing against social expectations. To do it well takes courage and compassion. So eliminating the non-essentials isn't just about mental discipline. It's about the emotional discipline necessary to say no to social pressure. What if we stopped celebrating being busy as a measure of importance? What if instead we celebrated how much time we have spent listening, pondering, meditating, and enjoying time with the most important people in our lives? What if the whole world shifted from the undisciplined pursuit of more to the disciplined pursuit of less? Only better. I have a vision of people everywhere having the courage to live a life true to themselves instead of the life others expect of them. To harness the courage we need to get on the right path it pays to reflect on how short life really is and what we want to accomplish in the little time we have left. As poet Mary Oliver wrote, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Now, McCown, as far as I know, is not a believer. He didn't write this as a Christian book. And so maybe if I were to just adjust one thing about what he says here is maybe not necessarily our own dreams, but what God's dreams are for us. Let me just close again with this verse that I've already read, Psalm 46, verse 10. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
what are you doing in my life, in my family, in my work, in my neighborhood, in my church, right now, God, that you are already involved with, that you are invi inviting me to participate in? Let's pray.